Hi, I'm Tim Rood. I'm the head of government and industry relations here at CITUS AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. Today, my very special guest is former FHFA director, Jim Lockhart. Uh, Jim, good to have you. Oh, it's good to be here, Tim. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Hey, so the last time I saw you, I think we mentioned this, was probably right before the pandemic at an Urban Institute um, event here in DC. I was on, uh, I think it was on reverse mortgages. Now, having seen your background on uh, both Social Security and the Pension Benefit Fund, makes a lot more sense to me why you would have a keen interest in it. But so, so what have you been up to since uh, um, since COVID or during COVID, I guess? Well, I retired from uh, WL Ross, where I was running their financial services, uh, investments, banks, mortgage companies in the U.S. and Europe. Uh, and then I'm a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, but I have not been back to Washington <laughs> in the last couple of years. Uh, and then uh, also somehow got involved as the chairman of our local art and science museum in Greenwich, the Bruce Museum. Oh. Nothing fun, Jim? That sounds like work. <laughs> it is work. We're in a major, <laughs> major expansion. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Hey, uh, so let me give everybody a, a quick bio. Now, this is, of course, an abridged uh, bio uh, of you, Jim. And as you mentioned, you're currently a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy uh, Center. And before that, you were vice chair at W.L. Rawson Company. Part of the management committee, you oversaw financial services investment team. And relevant to this group, of course, is you served on the investment committees for its private equity and mortgage funds. Of particular interest is the time you spent at um, OFEO and FHFA, the regulator of Fannie and Freddie. That was 2006 to late 2009. So you were a holdover in the Obama administration from the, um, from the Bush administration. You were chairman of Federal Housing Finance Oversight Board, which then rolled into FHFA, and a member of the Financial Stability Oversight Board, better known as FSOC. A lot going on there. Uh, you held positions, as I just mentioned, at Social Security Administration, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. You hold degrees from Yale and Harvard Business School. And I did not know that you were lieutenant in the U.S. Navy on a nuclear sub a good friend of mine, Brian Palmer, actually was uh, one of the commanders or something on a nuclear sub. He said, Bayview. If you, don't get, if you don't know him, get to know him. He's a great guy. So, and you've been friends with George W. Bush since prep school. And as I, as I warned, and I, I know a number of Bush appointees, including my old business partner, Brian Montgomery, there is the obvious <laughs> habit that President Bush had of handing out nicknames for whatever reason. Um, so begs the question, Jim, what was your nickname? Uh, the nickname is Juice. And actually I got it the year before George actually arrived at Andover. So he didn't give it to me, <laughs> he inherited it, but never let me outlive it uh, through all the years. Uh, and in fact, as I was telling you earlier, my wife in her infinite wisdom has decided my grandchildren to call me Juice. So <laughs> I haven't now, some of them even call me Juicy, which I think is a little, a little too far, but at any rate, <laughs> I'm not going to outlive it. I can only only speculate. I know George doesn't, or President Bush doesn't drink, so I suspect it doesn't have anything to do with that. So I guess we'll just have to use our imaginations. We, we drank in college. <laughs> okay, <laughs> makes it easier for me. 
Well, hey, you know, the reason I reached out is we had recently done here at, at Citus AMC a field guide that was really around doing business in D.C. for real estate mortgage professionals. You know, this is that time of year in a new administration where their team's on the field, um, folks make a pilgrimage to D.C. to make contacts, understand policy, make recommendations, better understand the context of the policy, all that fun stuff. So I've been doing a number of speeches and writing about, you know, kind of COVID, I guess, generated financial, I guess you would air quote it, events or crisis, depending on the lens that you're using, you know, debt and deficit spending versus, you know, financial Armageddon of not doing anything. So it made me think that it probably would be a great time to look back at the last crisis, of course, the great financial crisis, but largely from the housing and mortgage vantage point. And, and, and really try to compare them to our current set of related challenges. Um, so I thought it'd be great to catch up. And actually, um, I thought you would have some pretty strong insights. It's uh, been what? I think it's 14 years, God help us, since uh, you put the GSEs into conservatorship. Um, HERA, the enabling legislation, was really only, what, 60, probably less than that, days old when it actually, um, when conservatorship actually happened. Um, so, you know, yeah, in about, my own world, about, 40, yeah. <laughs> about what? 40 days, <laughs> 40 days. Jeez Louise. <clears throat> okay. Well, that gives you the sense of the urgency of the time. So with that as the, as the setup in your own words, can you, can you kind of take us back to the 2007 ish timeframe that kind of set the stage for what ultimately led to the, to the GSEs being put into conservatorship, just like the scene sure. setter. Sure, be happy to. I, I was parachuted in, and I guess it was about April of 06. And the administration already wanted reform legislation. President Bush did not like the Fannie and Freddie and their structure. Uh, and we worked from there on. Uh, uh, Secretary Paulson joined maybe a couple months after I did. And, uh, you know, we worked very hard for some sort of legislation uh, by. 07, the House had actually passed some legislation, but it was too weak. Uh, Barney Frank was the pusher, obviously. Uh, but by the summer of 07, it was the market was starting to crack. And it, it started to crack with subprime, obviously. Uh, you could see the ABX coming down and uh, people were pulling back from the market, the banks were. And uh, Fannie and Freddie, by the summer of 07, were becoming one of the few players uh, in the marketplace, we had the, you know, the Bear Stearns funds going in, into trouble uh, and some other funds having problems. Uh, Fannie and Freddie, actually, the two CEOs said that they were big enough to sa save the market. Uh, we had already constrained them somewhat because of their accounting problems. Uh, they had not produced SEC registered statements for years. Fannie and Freddie had never, actually. Uh, and so... 07, it was starting to crack. We made them raise equity. Uh, we kept pushing them to do better uh, uh, in their credit assessment. Uh, and uh, by the spring of 08, Bear Stearns hit. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a big problem in the marketplace. And at the same time, Fannie and Freddie were effectively the only game in town at that point, except for FHA. They, everybody else had really much pulled out. Uh, we started to loosen the strengths a little bit on Fannie and Freddie, uh, but made them keep their credit standards up, uh, which 
was an issue because there was still so much subprime out there. And many of the subprime loans had been made with a you know, two and 28 or three and 27 so that they had a, a fixed rate to begin with, but and the rates were going up pretty dramatically. <clears throat> so that was causing a problem. Uh, we continued to work nonstop for legislation and it, it took a while. The, the Senate was very slow uh, and the Democrats and Republicans were fighting each other. Uh, and uh, finally, Secretary Paulson uh, was able to you know, strike a compromise and uh, we you know, got, got the Senate to pass legislation. But then it became pretty apparent uh, that the legislation wasn't adequate because there was no FDIC behind the Fannie and Freddie. There was no financial backing. So if we put them into conservatorship or receivership, there was nothing to support them. So Hank in his famous speech, I guess it was in June, July of 08, asked for his bazooka uh, which is the ability to to lend money to Fannie and Freddie. And as you said, I think it was July 30th, uh, the legislation was signed by President Bush. Brian was in that Oval Office ceremony, actually, now that I think back about it. Yep. So we yeah. did get signed. <laughs> I do recall. Yeah, I, know. I remember seeing the picture uh, in his office uh, of the the Harris signing. I think it was in the in the Oval <laughs> Office. So yeah, I was actually at Fannie Mae in two, up until the end of 2006. So you, so you can imagine, uh, given what um, followed uh, my exit, probably, I don't think they're correlated. I, I like to think that they're not. Um, but <laughs> well, you got a good time. <laughs> I, I got out at an amazing time. It's a great story that I'll, I'll bore you with one day, but I've described it as, it's kind of like if you ever watched a Bugs Bunny cartoon and you see a, him uh, in a plane careening to earth, but he jumps out like 10 feet before the plane crashes to the ground. And he just dusts him off like he just fell five or 10 feet and the plane's up in shambles. That That's kind of how I felt. <laughs> it was, well, uh, I arrived, so I, I was on the plane, unfortunately. <laughs> or as yeah. I like to say, uh, you know, I, we were underwater pretty quickly. Well, it was, a, sur it's, it was a surreal time though, right? I mean, to say the least. So Fannie and Freddie were losing market share to the private label markets, um, subprime, Alt-A. Uh, they were in fights with their shareholders, their staff. I remember being in countless meetings about, you know, whether we stick to friends and family sorts of lending or whether you chase the market that this time it's different. You're going to have home price appreciation goes up forever. Um, that was kind of the the narrative that underwrote some of the unsound principles and uh, policies by uh, by the industry. And it kind of felt like, it's like, okay, guys, what do you want to do? Do you want to take it in the chest or do you want to take it in the face? We can either get our heads taken off by our regulators for not doing enough affordable housing type stuff, or we can get slaughtered by our shareholders uh, and our staff who are going to think that, you know, we've lost our mind that we're not conservative in keeping up with the time. So it was... Um, it was a, yeah. quite the era, to say the least. It was, tough. it was a tough time. I remember, I think the first board meeting I went to with uh, at Freddie Mac, and uh, I mentioned credit risk. This was the summer of '06, and, and you know the board member said there's no credit risk. That Fannie, Freddie knows how to manage credit, uh, and you know it was it was sort of a naive view at sometimes at the tops of those companies, uh, but uh, you know. They were, and the other thing they did obviously is they were buying and they were 
the two of them were the biggest buyers of the private label mortgage-backed security AAA tranches. Uh, and, you know, without them buying, that market probably would not have gotten to what, I think it was over 50% at some point uh, in that, by the summer of 06. So, uh, every yeah. yeah, every bit. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a wild time. But at the same time, you know, I think it cost originally back then was like $2,500 and we were working to bring it down. And now it's like $10,000. So, but that's for later in the, um, in the broadcast. I think we can cover okay. that. But so as you look back at this thing, I mean, I can't imagine how many times you've looked back at this and either shook your head, smiled, buried your face in your hands, something. But is there, is there anything that you regret or that you would have changed if you had to do it all over again? Yeah, well, I've, I've looked back at it, I could see in the process of finishing a book called Underwater, and it, it really goes to my whole government career, starting out with submarines, hence the title, <laughs> but also the pension world was underwater, uh, PBDC was underwater, certainly okay. Social Security is, is, is sinking as well. So it, it was done a lot of thinking about it. Uh, you know, as I look back, it's, it's just a shame that we couldn't get the legislation quicker. Uh, and, and get control because we had no control over their capital. That was all legislated. Uh, you know, we had put in a small 30% surcharge because of their accounting problems, but it was still themselves, they could lever themselves close to 100 to 1. Uh, and so capital was the big issue. But there was other issues, uh, including, you know, the fact that we had, a, they had two regulators. Uh, HUD was the regulator for affordable housing, uh, and uh, was pushing them really hard to do more and more affordable housing, uh, low-income housing. And at one by the, ten, the time of the uh, conservatorship, I think they had to do 55% of their loans uh, to medium and low-income uh, people, and it just didn't work. Uh, and and uh, so there was a lot of different pressures on them. Uh, but uh, you know, if we'd gotten legislation earlier uh, for the capital, to be able to control their affordable housing goals and some other things that would have helped. I mean, actually I met with President Bush the January as he was leaving. And, you know, he asked me that same question. What happened if we had gotten the legislation earlier? You know, it, we might've been able to at least lessen the crisis, probably not stop it, but at least lessen it. Well, that's like the old adage of um, legislating in DC, Right. You either get legislation um, when it's so urgent that everyone, you know, links armed and jumps off the cliff together or however you want to whatever metaphor you want to use. Or um, once it's the issue is so that passing a legislation really doesn't matter and therefore it's not so contentious. So I think the like anything yeah. else, timing matters. Yeah. And all my in the PBGC, we needed legislation and had several, but it's you know, and it just got a bailout actually in their multi-employer plans. Social Security uh, spent the whole four years there working on legislation that never happened, still hasn't happened. Uh, you know, so it, it is a problem. It's hard to reach bipartisan consensus in Washington. Uh, and, and uh, you know, in the case of Fannie and Freddie, they had an extremely active legislative lobbying group uh, that made it sure it was very, very hard to get the legislation. But there was a very effective lobbying group, from what, I from what I recall. Yeah, I think it was Frank Raines, the CEO, when I was there for a period of time. He described kind of like their lobbying, the lobbying effort um, as, why kick him once when you can kick him twice? <laughs> Damn. He, he wasn't there when I was there, but uh, there was still a lot of kicking going on. 
Yeah, he was not a man to be trifled with. Well, you know, well, given that that front row seat that you had to the great financial crisis and obviously the related housing crisis from, you know, naturally your role um, at FHFA, but also FSOC, which oversaw programs like TARP and TALF, um, you know, how, how would you compare the government's response, I guess, to that crisis versus the most recent one, one that resulted in, of course, you know, almost 10 million households in extended uh, mortgage forbearance and then rent forbearances, tens of millions in that, you know, some for nearly two years and, you know, you throw on top of that foreclosure moratoriums. I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just curious from the point of, point of view of how would you see that? You know, how do you compare that response to the one that you had to deal with? Well, I, you know, it was sort of a whole new game for us uh, and we had to be pretty creative uh, certainly, Hank's bazooka, the preferred, was a very creative thing that worked very well. And we, the ability to buy Fannie and Freddie securities, the Fed coming in and uh, with TARP uh, bailing out, not bailing out, but buying preferred and a lot of different banks uh, and auto companies for that matter, uh, and AIG. Uh, there was a lot of firepower put in very quickly, but it almost didn't happen. Uh, the TARP, I was actually at the hearing that TARP was first considered at the Senate and uh, Bernanke and Paulson were torn apart. Uh, and, you know, it took another month or so. I think the difference was that we were much better prepared this time around because of all the things that were done uh, in the great financial crisis. You know, the Fed was able to buy mortgage-backed securities and treasuries quickly uh, the uh, legislation came quicker uh, than it did last time. And a, a lot of the pieces were already in place, so that made it easier. Uh, and you know, the, as a result, the, the bounce back was a lot quicker than it was uh, in the case of the great financial crisis. And the great financial crisis was a, you know, a worldwide phenomenon. Some people forget that, but one of the things that I used to say, because we invested in some of those countries, was that Ireland, Spain, and UK had a bigger fall in the more, their housing prices than we did. Uh, and so it, it really took a concerted effort around the world to, to uh, recover from the crisis. Uh, this time around, I think uh, people, the tools were known. Uh, some of them had to be uh, obviously passed and others could be done by the Fed by themselves. But I think it, I think it really helped that we unfortunately had the great financial crisis. Yeah, that plumbing was in place and the facilities were in place for the Fed to act as quickly as it did and as aggressively as it did. Um, shocking how quickly um, legislatively we came around to some really big numbers and some aggressive um, you know, stimulus and relief um, funding. But I mean, did you guys ever contemplate either during Bush or during the Obama administration, any sort of these, these measures that didn't really exist wholesale before. Again, the moratoriums, whether it be um, foreclosure, eviction, or the extended forbearances, was that ever uh, on the table? It didn't didn't seem like it would have been just because of all the talk of moral hazard and uh, yeah. Rick Santelli ranting <laughs> about paying for somebody else's third bathroom or vacation home or something like that. Yeah, no, it, there was there was some pressure not to do things. That's for sure. I think. Uh, I was called the, the most hated man in America at one point. Uh, the, 
the, the so there, there there was pressure not to do anything. Uh, Hamp and you know, we put in very quickly a streamlined mortgage uh, modification plan with Fannie and Freddie, and that was the start of of Hamp. And, and you know there were modifications. Uh, there were foreclosure moratoriums, but they were tended to be around holidays. I think we did one, you know, December or through January or something that first year. And, uh, you know, maybe we should have done more. Uh, the, the problem, there was a lot of tension at that point because uh, as conservators, some people thought the only thing I should worry about is conserving the assets of Fannie and Freddie. And, and my view was very different from that. I felt that they were the only game in town and they had to be the the counter cyclical force, the one that could help bail out the mortgage market. And that meant in some cases that they you know, were losing money uh, in the short term to help the mortgage market recover, which would which helped them big time uh, long term. And, we, you know, we did some creative things. Uh, the uh, PPIP program, private public investment partnerships, Excellent. they bought those AAA mortgage-backed securities. Uh, actually, at uh, uh, WLR Invesco, which I work for, we had one of those programs. And it, 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 they were successful. They actually made good money for the Treasury Department and good money for the, in, the investors. Uh, and so there were some really creative things, but it took a while. That one took until September of, uh, I think it's, it was uh, September of 09, so it was a year after you know, the crisis hit. Uh, but I, I, my sense is uh, that things could have been done quicker, uh, but both the Bush and the Obama administration uh, were, were very creative. I mean, we were able to do uh, the HARP program, the refinance program. Uh, and as you know, Fannie and Freddie, in theory, can only lend up to 80% of a loan uh, of a house value. And uh, we were able through HARP and some creative lawyering uh, to be able to really rate refinance anybody, no matter how much equity they had in their house, which because interest rates were falling relatively quickly, really bailed out a whole slew of uh, homeowners. Uh, so there, there were creative things done. It just took longer and there was you know, more pressure, uh, at least initially, uh, you know, not to, to bail out people and not to bail out companies. Right. Well, now I would describe it as, um, well, I guess similar to back then. It does seem to be that the with Build Back Better kind of, um, you know, build back smaller or don't, don't build back at all, um, that all of the housing provisions that were in there, 160 odd billion that go away, I, it, it'll be curious to me whether or not the administration abandons some of those that, that mission-centric provisions in the um, for housing-related stuff in Build Back Better, or whether they just redirect it to the, the true instruments of public policy at their disposal, for better or worse, which would be the GSEs and possibly HUD. But Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting question. I think the, the budget that was leaked yesterday or something had some money for affordable housing, uh, but a lot smaller. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I just read, I think maybe today even, which I thought was a good idea is there should be a much better coordination of FHA, VA, and FHFA, Fannie and Fred, uh, on affordable housing. Uh, I, you know, almost in some cases they're competitors. Uh, and what a one thing, a simple thing would be for them to put out a, a united report annually of 
their activities and then slowly try to work uh, to, to have a mechanism so that they're, you know, they, they serve one market well and rather than try to compete, which occasionally they, I think they do at this point, oh, yeah. especially, especially because they have affordable housing goals still. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I mean, it's an easy opportunity to kind of arbitrage uh, the government agencies uh, for whatever personal or professional objective that you have. So I, I think that we used to talk about a housing czar. Like if you could, if you have a, a you know, secretary of defense who can basically control, you know, all divisions of the United States military, army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and all that, then certainly you can have somebody who can be in charge of and have alignment over uh, the various house federal and quasi-federal uh, housing agencies and enterprises, to your point. Yeah, I mean, obviously at this point, with over 70% government or quasi-government, whatever you want to call it, uh, it, is much too much federal involvement. And, you know, I keep saying that we have the most socialistic housing system uh, in, in the developed world, as far as I can tell you. I was on bank board, the Virgin Money in the UK, uh, and you know, the government was not that involved, even in the crisis. We invested in Bank of Ireland. They ended up, unfortunately, having to take over most of the banks, and that's not where you want to end up. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, it's it's a lot because they're a thirty-year fully prepayable fixed-rate mortgage, uh, and those countries just don't know, do not have it, so the banks can do it. In this country, it's very very hard unless you're a very very big bank uh, to do that kind of mortgage. Uh, you know, we we invested, I think, in uh, five community banks in the U.S. And we invested probably another 10. Uh, and uh, a couple of them wanted to do 30 year fixed rate mortgages. And we just told them they didn't have the capability and the, the, the risk management capability to, to do it properly. So that, you know, that is an issue that, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to change. <laughs> not certainly directionally. I mean, it. it... I think we touched on this a little bit. This is one of my hangups is it, it really, and I thought why this discussion would be so interesting and entertaining is that, you know, it does feel like we're living in this sort of parallel universe from when, you know, you were at FHFA or at OFEO. And I, I, I'll rattle off. I wrote down a couple this morning, just a, a few examples of what I'm talking about, just in terms of the housing mortgage related stuff that I'd love love to get your reaction to this kind of alternative reality. So a couple of things that jumped out to me was, again, this, this juxtaposition. Today's housing market, of course, is red hot. I think we're up 35% since the beginning of COVID versus the obviously unprecedented national housing crash that we had in 2007. Negative equity, um, as you were describing with HARP, um, you know, is a very foreign concept in residential real estate today. Actually, I was kidding with my wife. I said, I think the last time I used the term, you know, quote unquote, upside down, as you mentioned, was during a conversation that was probably followed by Margarita. You know, I don't, I can't, I don't think I've said upside down in a mortgage context in 10 or 12 years. Back then, the GSEs were losing share to the private label market at a rapid pace. GSEs were around 40%. Now the government, uh, as we were discussing, is in aggregate closer to 95% of all new originations. They're backing it. There was obviously a huge glut of housing back then. Now we've got the most anemic housing inventory on record, or, or at least darn close, maybe within a few months ago, it was a little bit lower. Um, just from an underwriting perspective, 
anyone who could fog a mirror could get a mortgage back back then. Uh, now, credit is obviously very tight. Underwriting is very conservative. And heck, we've even legislated the risks a mortgage lender can reasonably take uh, through the CFPB. Last time, um, I guess the last crisis, we had to bail out the banks because of their mortgage exposure. And now banks barely participate in the mortgage market because it's, and uh, obviously we're dealing with um, prudential regulations and standards for, for um, who took their place, which were the independent mortgage bankers. Two last ones were, you know, granted this, you know, a financial crisis this time is COVID induced versus, I guess you would call it fraud and speculation induced like the last one. And then you have lawmakers this time tripping over themselves to spend whatever it was, close to $5 trillion directly. And then um, that's for uh, fiscal stimulus, basically. And then you have the Federal Reserve making a market. I guess they bought, they doubled their balance sheet uh, during COVID. I think that's about $4 trillion to buy, make a market for all sorts of assets and equity. It worked famously, notwithstanding the, you know, $8 trillion balance sheet that we'll do with sooner or later. And the last thing I would say is just that, that the terms like moral hazard, protected taxpayer, which were, you know, the common refrains of the last crisis, you know, those are more likely to be found on, I don't know, arm patches and pins at an antique show uh, than in newspapers or political speeches today. So it's a lot to unpack, but it's stark, the differences. So I was just curious from you know, how do you look at this sort of radical change? Is it is it positive? Is it negative? Or are we more enlightened, more humane? What, what do you think? Well, you're right. It's very different. Uh, and it's a different market as well. I mean, I was looking the other day, I guess probably the mortgage market itself is probably up about 25% since the crisis. And yet home equity is up 250%. So, I mean, there's a lot bigger cushion going at the moment, uh, which is good news. Uh, but we, you know, so we're in a bubble, but the, you know, if the bubble bursts or comes down, it's not going to cause as much problems, hopefully. Uh, there are certainly people that have bought houses recently that will come back to being underwater. Uh, but it, it is a different world. Uh, and, you know, there are certainly some concerns to me. Uh, I've always said, as we talked about reforming Fannie and Freddie even before, uh, you know, starting probably in 06, that they uh, and the government had to be counter cyclical in the regulatory process, which means that as housing prices get too high, they pull back credit uh, and, and uh, do other things to lessen the bubble. Uh, and we're just the opposite. We're doing everything pro cyclical at the moment. You know, the Fed has just fed this dramatically uh, with low interest rates. And, and yet somehow we're not building houses, which is strange. And I guess it's a lot because of local zoning and other things. But uh, it, it is it's hard to get your head around. Uh, but I am concerned that we, you know, we are getting to be in bubble territory. Uh, but what that means probably is different than it meant uh, 14 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, like you, I'm worried about the new entrance right to the housing market. We're, we're breaking our pick to find ways to serve the underserved. Um, but they're obviously, they're fighting their way into a pretty frothy market. Um, it's not apparent to me um, what will trigger the next housing mortgage crisis, but we know it's practically inevitable. And, and the 
the, the reality of the people who are just getting into the housing market now versus those who bought even just two years ago, they're going to have a very different uh, outcome and experience. And since home ownership has fallen for minorities generally, <clears throat> then you can imagine all of the effort around um, shrinking that uh, that that home ownership gap, that wealth gap uh, through home ownership. Um, is, is going to have some casualties and we've got to figure out whether sustainability means the same thing today as it meant 20 years ago, which because now that the government has figured out that they can unilaterally suspend, you know, again, foreclosures and things like that for years on end, is sustainable still really the same thing it meant 20 years ago, which is through good times and bad, you'll have the um, capacity, willingness, and credit to make your payments. Now, does it just mean you don't leave? Yeah. No, um, I, I, you know, it, it is an issue. I think one of the different, another difference between now and then is uh, almost 50% of the mortgages had some sort of variable rate pre-crisis. And, you know, as the Fed starts to push up rates again, that could have been a big, and it was a big issue back then. Uh, it's not it's going to be as big an issue this time because uh, most all the mortgages uh, these days are fixed rate, either 30 year or 15 year. Uh, and so that does give us some protection. And some of the people that have been buying houses are better protected than they would be otherwise as interest rates increase. Uh, so that's, you know, something that may help the bubble not being as bad a situation. Uh, but it, it is concerning to me because when you buy a house, you're basically underwater because if you wanted to sell it, you have to pay a 6% commission. Uh, and, you know, some of these, uh, you know, FHA and some of the Fannie and Freddie programs are what three and a half, four percent time down payments. So th there, there are issues out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we go into a recession, it certainly could become a, a problem again. Uh, hopefully nowhere near as bad as it was back then. Uh, and, and, you know, I think, People, we need to think about, you know, when mortgage markets have the kind of bubble we've had in the last couple of years, that we figure out some countercyclical policies. And uh, as I said before, uh, we're doing just the opposite. It's all procyclical. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And we're, I think we're reading from the same hymnal or management textbook because I, I too have been kind of put off by how procyclical the government has been. And then, you know, trying to, rationalize, you know, does the government need to buy my million dollar mortgage or my second home or my investment property? And where are the opportunities for, like you mentioned, PPIP or the public-private partnerships so that you can lose some private capital back in, share some of the risks, um, and accept that they might make some money in the process. That That isn't necessarily a, a cautionary tale. If they're willing to stand side by side and take risks with you, then, uh, you know, then they should be afforded the opportunity to get a return on their investment. Yeah, I, I think, for instance, the uh, credit risk transfer program that Ed DeMarco put in yep. was a, a step in the right direction. I'm glad it was reinstated. Uh, and, you know, but that could also become, you know, pro-cyclical because I assume if the market starts exactly. to turn down, that money would be pulled out and, and not put in again. But I, I think it was a step in the right direction, getting more private capital we need to. I mean, it, it, it's just, you know, we need to figure out a way to slim down Fannie and Freddie. 
uh, and get the private sector back into the mortgage market. And you know that that maybe banks uh, and maybe more private label securities with the, you know 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever you know <laughs> the version people were talking about today. Uh, but it's hard to do that when there's you know total government backing effectively for Fannie and Freddie at this point, uh, and it's hard to compete with them. And so we we need to figure out a way to slim down the government role in housing. Uh, and, and so far, we don't seem to be willing to do that. Yeah, no, we're, we're kind of vilifying private sector in this. And it's that happens at a very challenging time where the administration seems to be talking about um, two policy objectives as it relates to housing that are, are probably going to work across purposes, right? I've got to, one, tell all of the lenders that we're going to widen the credit box. We're going to break a few eggs making this omelet. Uh, you're going to have to take on more risks. Oh, and by the way, um, that we'll be investigating any foreclosure, any serious delinquency, any whatever to find out, you know, whether you didn't cross the T, dot an I, whatever administrative issue you had. And I'm, I'm not trivializing systemic and intent, intentional fraud, misrepresentation, deception. I'm just talking about the administration administrative side of these things um, are going to be um, are going to be uh, handled in a very hyper vigilant way by the regulators. So that makes the people, again, those instruments of public policy, banks, independent mortgage bankers, whatever, um, very anxious and tentative to jump in with both feet to satisfy the mission uh, objective of expanding home ownership. So We'll see how that plays out if the if the rhetoric changes. But I think to your point, it's really just trying to figure out when and how private capital makes it back into the market. Is it through CRT? CRT, as you already mentioned, is is like all private capital is going to be um, pro-cyclical. So in times of stress, they're nowhere to be found, and we hope that they perform, um, you know, as designed. But we don't know yet, so that'll be interesting. So. I guess that comes at least that that big question, which is, you know, have the have that housing and the mortgage markets become so important and top of mind for politicians, you know, financially, socially, politically, you know, that the government's going to try to maintain its dominance in that market through either effective or actual nationalization of those markets? Because in my mind, they're nationalized. They just haven't, you know, they just haven't filled out the paperwork yet and they haven't passed the legislation. But for all intents and purposes, it's it's pretty well nationalized. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting situation. Uh, and uh, effectively, the preferred and the stock options we took when we you know put them into conservatorship, it took stock options for 79.9%. If we had gone to 80%, they would have had been uh, put on the balance sheet of the United States. And so what we have now is six and a half trillion dollars of off balance sheet financing for the US on Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and, uh, you know, they used to, I mean, and they made, I think, you know, over 100 million, uh, 100 billion, excuse me, uh, in, in more than they put into Fannie and Freddie. And, and they still own 79.9% of the stock uh, and uh, 190 billion of preferred. Uh, and so it's not going to be easy on scramble. Uh, and, uh, I'm not sure there's any will in this administration to unscramble. Uh, there was some will in the last administration, but it came 
too little and too late, in my opinion. Uh, and, uh, you know, looks like there's, there, people are, are happy. I, I remember Hank Paulson saying in a speech, well, maybe five years after the conservatorship, uh, after they put in the, the sweep of uh, the profits, that now that Fannie and Freddie are doing so well, there's less incentive to uh, remove them from the government. And, and that is a problem. There just doesn't seem to be uh, a group of people that think that uh, that the U.S. should not have a socialized uh, mortgage market. Yeah, and the money they're making tens of billions of dollars a year versus when you were there, they were probably making single digits, four or five billion a year on a good year. Now, I think last year, Fannie Mae made $22 billion in conservatorship. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've kind of described them as, and as, a, as somebody with, with great affinity for the GSC, as I say this in jest, but if you're a, a lawmaker and you have this two-headed monster just coughing up $100 bills um, and serving a public policy, real public policy purpose, it's hard to get the political will um, to step in, disrupt the status quo. And, um, you know, I use the, ex the, ex the example that if you're a legislator and, and you found, you know, the one out of a thousand people on the street that actually know what the heck a GSE is, and you said, hey, buddy, um, what do you think about the GSEs? You know, do you like them, don't like them? Um, and then that, in this hypothetical example, the person goes, you know what? I can't stand those guys. You know what? They're worse than the, the Wall Street uh, fat cats, the venal Wall Street types. These guys, they're, they're, they're lining their pockets with a government subsidy for housing, blah, blah, blah. So then the politician goes, okay, so you're saying you want to reform them. You want to wind them down. And the person goes, you know what? Absolutely. And the politician goes, okay, great. Let me take you through how we're going to spend your $250 a month. And you know what? Don't even worry about that lost 10% of equity in your property. I mean, daggone it. This is a shared sacrifice. We're in this together. And the person goes, what the heck are you talking about? Like, oh, yeah. Well, once you sack these companies and if you take away the implicit government guarantee, then, you know, they're going to be replaced by something that's more expensive. But, you know, again, shared sacrifice. We're all in this together. That's a tough conversation to have. Doesn't mean that they should be in every market, but it's a tough conversation for politicians to wrap their head around um, and also to put themselves out on the line uh, to do anything that will uh, disrupt that status quo. Yeah, no, it, it is hard. And, and it's even harder when you mention the word implicit guarantee. Uh, and, you know, it, it is definitely there. And how could you remove that from a 30-year fixed rate mortgage? It may exist for 30 years. Uh, so you almost have to bifurcate somehow, the, you know, the existing book from any new book if, if you did it. Uh, and so that becomes even, a, you know, a bigger problem, how to, how to create that kind of structure. Uh, and uh, so uh, I've, you know, probably over the years I've given, I don't know how, how many, many scores of speeches on how to fix Fannie and Freddie. Uh, and it, it's tough. I mean, you know, it's easy to say that we need to uh, separate the government from the private sector. We need clear lines. Uh, and but when you actually try to work through the issues, it's not as easy as you think. I mean, I, I actually, one of my proposals was uh, that you effectively create new subsidiaries of, in fact, 
two in each single family and multifamily uh, uh, in both companies and have the parents, the old Fannie and Freddie fund them and let them put the new business in that, uh, those companies and let the old business run off with the implicit guarantee. Uh, you know, whether you could do that or not, I'm not sure, uh, you know, administratively it's possible probably, uh, but you know, the chances of getting legislation at least for the next four years seems very slim. Yeah, yeah, I think once the midterm elections are over that the, the, the legislative environment for um, the Biden administration is pretty much over, unfortunately. Um, but it would be political malpractice for them not to do something with all this reconciliation authority. So I'm sure they'll do something. I doubt it will have anything to do with housing, but I'm optimistic. Um, but I've kept you a long time, Jim, so I, I don't want to abuse any more of your time. Uh, but I, I got to think of something funny that, I mean, given all of your experience and the time that you spent and spent senior positions in the federal government, uh, the cast of characters, anywhere from Paulson to Bush to Bernanke to Frank, there's got to be like, is there is there one or more either, I don't know, pick a person or some exchange that you had that you can share um, that might, uh, you know, close us out with a smile on our face and get to get to know you a little bit better? Oh, I don't know. I have to think about that for a second. You know, I, I, you know, over the years had uh, some pretty close conversations with Paulson and Bernanke. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, they sat right next to me when I put, uh, when we put, but I would had the authority to put the two into conservatorship and certainly would not have been able to do it without it. But uh, one thing was, it was sort of funny, uh, you know, we put them in the conservatorship where we met with the CEOs on a Friday night. We met with the boards on Saturday. And then we had the, uh, uh, press conference on Sunday and Paulson pulled me aside and, and I couldn't believe this for, for you know, a CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs. He said, I'm not, not good at this. Uh, <laughs> he was really probably telling me that, that not to be nervous, but anyway, I always thought that was a little funny, but, uh, Oh, I guess the, the last conversation I had when Bush in the Oval Office in the January, I mentioned of, of 09, uh, he actually asked me, uh, what I thought would be a good investment going forward. Uh, he was already thinking that uh, Obama might be pretty lucky because the market has started to turn. And so I, I actually mentioned AAA mortgage-backed securities, if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, I was hoping you told him uh, single-family rent rentals or something like that. <laughs> well, I did trouble, uh, troubled mortgages and troubled real estate, yes, REO and whatever. But uh, luckily, he never did any of that, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> good move on his part uh jim hey man this is so much fun i appreciate it i really look forward to seeing you in person next time be well up in um, connecticut and um stay safe buddy okay we'll have fun at situs you know we were an old investor in that company and i always had a warm feelings about it and i'm glad you all are doing so well so thank you Tim. it's humming for sure thank you jim you've been listening to situs amc's on the hill to learn more about situs amc our company, our latest thinking, visit us at CitusAMC.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.